from Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give your attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb and the body of my mother, and he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, and for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves because the Lord who is fulfilled, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways on all the bare heights shall be their pasture. And they shall not hunger or thirst neither scorching winds nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these, shall, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinai. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Well, I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Father, uh, your word is always remarkable, but here um, it is clear um, that there's something glorious here, that in some ways we see Jesus centuries before he even came into this earth uh, speaking to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would please uh, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive your word. Would you please shape us more and more into the people you have made us to be? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So in the New Testament, when the disciples are talking to Jesus and they're asking kind of for prayer lessons, uh, Jesus gives them a very simple 
model, a template that we now have come to call the Lord's Prayer. We've already prayed it and sung it this morning. And at the very heart of the prayer, right in the middle of this, is probably the prayer that is the most challenging part, even of the Christian life. When we say those words, your will be done. I mean, they're more than just words, right? They're an expression of something that's almost threatening to us, or maybe is threatening to us. It is a prayer of surrender, a prayer of releasing control to God. A prayer that says, God, what you desire is actually more important than what I desire. It's a prayer that Jesus not only taught, but but Jesus modeled. We might remember in the garden as he is anticipating the cross, he prays to God, take this cup from me, but not your will, sorry, not my will, but your will be done. There it is again, your will be done. And I bring that up because I I think that prayer, and not just that prayer, but the life that corresponds to that prayer is what we find at the very heart of this morning's passage. If you've been with us last week, you know that for Lent we are looking at the servant songs in Isaiah, this mysterious collection of prophecies that speak of the servant of God, the servant that God will be sending in the future to rescue his people and more than that, work through his people to save the world. And, and as we saw last week, these songs are quite clearly pointing forward to Jesus. These are songs about Christ centuries before he came into this world. And this servant song we see in almost every aspect and expression of this prayer, your will be done. And so this morning, I'd like us to consider really three lessons that the servant has for us about what it means to pray and to live those words, your will be done. And the first lesson that that we are meant to notice is that when we pray, your will be done, we are embracing God's purposes for us. So perhaps you notice right at the outset of this song, which is sung actually by the servant himself, different from chapter 42, he speaks of how he has come to recognize God's plan for him. Notice how it says, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. And in that day, naming was more than just about coming up with a name that sounds nice. It's, it's meant as a description. He's saying, from before I was even born, God had decided the kind of person I would be. He had already set out a plan for what I was meant to do. And, and verse 3 develops a little bit more about what that plan is. And he said, that is God, said to me, you are my servants. Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That is my mission for you. And if we're a little confused because how is it that this person is Israel, verse 5 explains a little bit more what that means when it says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. His, God's plan for this servant is to be Israel's leader is to be one who comes to Israel and brings Israel back to him and through that to glorify God to the world around him. Now this, we should understand, was not a plan that the servant, once he came to maybe be about age 18 or 19, as he was looking at his career choices and thinking about his gifting and whatnot, decided, this is what I want to do. Now this is something that God determined for him 
long before he was even born. It says, even in the womb, he formed me, made me like an arrow, like a sword. He, he gifted me with his very specific plan and purpose that in many ways the servant did not have any say in. It was just given to him, and his calling was to embrace it. The Scripture says that for all eternity, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly united, and everything they desire the same thing. It's not that the Father chooses and the Son decides whether or not to agree. They all choose. The Son chose to come into this earth. It was a, a united desire. But Scripture also tells us that when the Son came into this world and became one of us, He became one of us in every way, including learning to submit Himself to the Father. Hebrews tells us that when Jesus was in this world, He learned obedience. So think of it this way. In, um, when, when Jesus was one year old, he, would not, he was not able to just preach the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe we would have called it like the Sermon on the Crib, where, you know, he somehow like talks about divorce and government as a one-year-old. That, that's absurd, right? We understand, if we understand anything about the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus as a one-year-old still didn't even know how to talk. He, he grew. He learned. And in the same way that he grew in his knowledge of language... He also grew in his knowledge of everything else. We should not assume that as a one-year-old he fully understood the will of God, who he was called to be. No, Scripture tells us that he, he asked questions. He studies the Scriptures as a kid. He grew in wisdom and knowledge. And, and that means that as he grew, he came to understand more about what God had called him to. As he, as he read the servant songs, as he heard, "'You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified,' he came to understand that that song was about him. And so as he grew, he learned to embrace a will of God that preceded him, a plan that was set before him from his mother's womb, he says. Now, the reason this is important is twofold. One, we should recognize that if you want to understand the heart of the Father, you need only look at the face of Jesus. I say this because oftentimes we have heard kind of a distinction made between the Father who seems kind of aloof and judgmental and Jesus who seems very gentle and loving, and yet here we see that that can't be the case because everything Jesus does, he does in submission to the Father who has set a plan long before Jesus' birth. Jesus is doing everything that the Father has asked him to. Whatever Jesus does expresses the heart of the Father, and that should encourage us. But what also I think we are meant to see here is that to be the servant of God means embracing a plan that precedes us. It's not just Jesus who has this plan marked out for him before he even enters this world. Scripture says that you and I were chosen in Christ before the foundations of this world. God already knew you before you knew him. He had already set out a plan for you before you understood even what language was. You have a plan that has been made for you by God, and, and frankly, you did not have any say in your purpose. 
And honestly, I think it's that that kind of at times can maybe rub us the wrong way, the idea that God has made a choice for us that we don't have any say in. And that's, that's very much of our age. There has been a lot of shift in the last, say, 70 years in terms of the way that our society is. Um, if, you, if you were in the 1950s, as David Brooks uh, writes in his book, The Second Mountain, the, the overriding um, virtue was the idea that we're all in this together. It, it was about the community. So if you lived in Southside Chicago, quite likely you would do the same thing that your grandfather did and your father did. Probably you'd be working as a union member at the Nabisco plant, right? And you would go to the local parish at the Catholic Church because that's where your parents went. And, and you would marry someone probably from the town. And, and you knew that you would live the very same town that you grew up in because at that time, it didn't matter as much what your personal desire was. You were part of a community. And so in some ways, even before you were born, there was a certain pathway that was set up for you. We're all in this together. Now, there's a kind of virtue to that. There is a connectedness when the community is primary. But there also were some problems with that. What happens if you don't want to fit into the constraints that people set before you? What happens if you don't want to work at the Nabisco plant or be a housewife? What happens if you want to pursue something different? Or what happens if you are a minority who doesn't really fit into the agenda of Southside Chicago? And so as a correction of this, we're all in this together, there evolved kind of a new direction. I get to decide who I am. I get to define me. That's, that's the, the last 50 years. And we know kind of what that mentality is, if I get to define myself, because, well, honestly, about 90% of every Disney movie you've ever seen basically has that mentality. I mean, you know the story. The story is basically someone grows up feeling the constraints of all of their parents' expectations or other expectations, and they learn deep within themselves that they have this desire. And the key to living well is to figure out that desire and to follow it no matter what. And, and that is the way that our society is shaped. I need to figure out who I am and, and live in a way that is true to that. That is so fundamental to us that it's almost inconceivable that we could think of things in any other way. Of course, I get to decide what job I want. Of course, I get to decide who I want to love. Of course, I get to decide my religion. Of course, I get to decide who I will be because that's what freedom is. And that's an important corrective. This this correct some of the problems of having a society where you're just needing to live up to everyone else's expectations. But it also has its own challenges. Because how do I define myself? If I don't have anyone else telling me what to do, if nothing outside of me is what's supposed to shape me, but it's only within, how do I figure out who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do? Do I just try to figure out what makes me happy? Well, how do I do that? Happiness is a notoriously elusive property. And in fact, many of the studies of what makes people happy have said that precisely when we are directly pursuing happiness, we rarely get it. That the people who are happiest are people who have some sense of purpose that drives them. And as they are pursuing this purpose, happiness comes along the way. And it is precisely that, that sense of purpose, that is lost 
if the only thing that tells me who I should be is me. Because purpose is not something that I can give to myself. Purpose is something that has to be given to me. And so this mentality of I get to define my life and who I am, while it corrects from some of the mistakes in the previous one, it, it does not end in, in this sense of joyful freedom. It ends in aimlessness, in confusion, in emptiness. And the truth is that Scripture has for us is that we do have something that stands outside of us, that defines us, that there is a purpose that God has for you and for me that is bigger than anything that's inside of me in terms of my own personal desires, a a purpose that was given to you before you were even born. Scripture says that you and I were meant for more than simply figuring out how to make enough money so that we can be comfortable and entertained. That you and I were given these gifts of intelligence and energy and creativity for more than just ultimately being a part of the economic engine of this country. Scripture says in the same way that Jesus was called to this, so also as we, as servants of God, are called to bring glory to him, to be his servants, to enable the world to come to know him. And each of you are are created uniquely so that you might have a unique contribution to this role. God has a purpose for you. He knows who you are, and he has set a pathway where you can uniquely fulfill this purpose he has given to you. And and perhaps that might feel threatening to say that God gets to decide what our purpose is and we don't. But unlike any other person, God knows you even better than you know yourself. And so when he gives you a purpose and when we take hold of it, that doesn't deny us or cause us to lose ourselves. That completes us. As we look at the servant, we begin by seeing that to say your will be done means embracing God's purpose for us. So the second lesson that the servant has for us is that when we say your will be done, we are trusting God with our failures. Perhaps one of the most surprising parts of this passage is in verse 4 where we see the servant after describing his calling, his purpose, well, it seems like it's not going very well. Verse 4, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Do you see what he's saying? The servant has been faithful. The servant knows his calling. The servant has given all of his energy towards obeying the Father. He has gone into this world like he is called to, to bring Israel back to God. And now he is saying, I have failed. This isn't a complaint. This is not him complaining against God. This is just an honest assessment. In this moment, I am getting no fruit. I have experienced futility, he is saying. When we think of Jesus, think of how at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, it says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Or we might think of how when Jesus, right before he, he comes into Jerusalem, he sees Jerusalem from afar and it says he weeps. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only 
you had understood your moment of visitation, if only you had recognized that I was coming to you. And in that moment, he was saying he knew that he would be rejected. He, he could very well in that moment have been saying, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. I have not brought God's people back to him. See, what this is telling you is that it is entirely possible for you to be faithfully following God's will, to be seeking first his kingdom, to be pursuing the purpose he has for you, and to be obedient and faithful and yet experience futility and grief and confusion. The fact that you are enduring failure at some point is not an indication that you have done anything wrong. It certainly wasn't for Jesus, right? But what we are being taught here is that when we're saying your will be done, our calling is to trust God even with our failure. What we see here is the key is not whether he failed or succeeded, but the key was how he responded to failure. In the second half of verse 4, I believe we're supposed to see actually a contrast between the servant here and the people of Israel. Do you remember in chapter 40, Israel, who themselves had experienced failure, they're in exile, right? And they have given up on God. They have said, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. They, they're, they're done. And God says, why do you say that? Don't you know that those who are weary, who wait on God, God will renew their strength. But Israel had just given up. Now, now notice, what does the servant say in verse 4? After expressing this futility, he says, yet surely my right is with the Lord. And my recompense with my God. And then if we just... Went down a little bit into verse 5. We see that even being spoken of more. He who formed me from the womb to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. What he is saying is, yes, it, it feels like I am a failure right now, but I'm going to withhold judgment because what matters is not my opinion, but God's opinion. I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. That's what matters. Yes, I feel defeated right now and completely out of energy, but, but it's not over until God says it's over because God's strength is my strength. See, what we see here, unlike with Israel, is the servant in the midst of his experience of failure waits on the Lord and allows God to be the one who judges whether this is a failure or success. And again, is there any clearer example of this than, than what we see with Christ on, on the cross, right? On the cross, the, the Jewish leadership has rejected him. The people of Israel have cried out, crucify him. And his, his own disciples have fled. Almost no one has left. And in that moment, it even feels to him like God has left him. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, what does he say immediately after that? He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. All feels like failure, and yet I will wait on God. 
he trusts God with his failure. When you are in these moments where you have been praying and you seek to be obedient and yet it seems nothing good is happening, the most important thing for you to understand is that Jesus knows exactly what that's like. Jesus has been there. Hebrews says he offered up loud cries and tears. He experienced a sense of futility. And so he also knows how to guide you through that. Jesus says in those moments, the servant says in those moments to us, remember. Remember that what God sees and his opinion of what is taking place matters much more than your own. What, what might look to the world like failure, what might look even to your own eyes like failure, might look very different from God. In fact, I suspect oftentimes those moments where we're most humbled and most weakened and most feel like nothing is going on from God's perspective are the moments that are most glorious because he sees in our weakness his strength working through us. Remember, when the world looked at the cross, they said failure and shame and when God looks at the cross, he says, behold, my glory and my salvation. What God's opinion is matters much more than our own. Remember that, the servant says. And remember also that the strength you have is found in God. In verse 5 again, it says, God has become my strength. You know, I, I run, not very well, but I run, and I found that oftentimes the, the, the hardest part of running is not even like my legs or cardiovascular, it's in my head. You know, like about, if I'm wanting to do a, a long run and I'm about two miles in, if I start feeling like, oh, I'm not sure I have the energy for this, then there, it's very easy for me at a certain point to kind of go, oh, you know what? not for today, and to kind of give up, even though I could have kept going, right? Our, 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 sometimes our sense that we can't go on stops us from going on. And, and it's oftentimes the case, and when we're experiencing failure and futility, we just feel like, I've, I've got nothing left. I'm not sure. I mean, we might have enough energy for today, but it's like, I don't, I don't think I can keep going tomorrow with this. And, and, the, and the truth is, you might be right. You, you might be done. But God says he gives strength to the weary. He renews those who are weak. God is our strength. And, and, and the servant says, remember, God is your strength. Keep going. God is there with you. The calling here is to wait on God in the midst of our failure. Saying your will be done as we look at the servant means trusting God with our failure. And then finally, if we look at the servant, we realize that saying your will be done means allowing the vision of God to expand our own vision for our lives. When we've experienced things like defeat, like failure, our inclination is just to be realistic, right? To say, you know what, I, I don't think I'm going to be someone who does much. If I can just kind of make it through, that will be enough. And yet we see something very different here in terms of how God speaks to the servants. There, there's an interesting theme. Maybe you picked this up beginning in verse 2 of kind of a hiddenness. Did you notice in verse 2 when it says that he made my mouth like a sharp sword? Immediately it says in the shadow of his hand he hid me. There's this theme of stealth. It happens again right after. He made me a polished arrow and in his quiver he hid me away. There is something about this servant that is hidden. 
And I think that becomes apparent what that means when we go later on. After, after Jesus says, after the servant says, it's like I am a failure, then what, how does God respond? It's almost like in that moment, God, God doesn't say, oh yeah, I understand. You can get him next time. It's okay. God does not seem in any way thwarted by Jesus' statement that in this moment it appears that I'm a failure. Instead, there seems to be a very different approach. It's like in this moment, now God finally says, okay, now it's time to draw out the sword. Now it's time to pull out the arrow. There's this sense, it's like this is all going exactly according to plan, and now you need to hear phase two. Do you see that? In verse six, it says, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Did you catch this? Jesus is saying, I have labored in vain. No one in Israel is coming back to me. And God says, okay, now this is going exactly according to plan. Now you need to understand. Not only are you going to rescue all of Israel, I am going to have you rescue all of the world. I mean, talk about a confusing twist. It would be like, say, I gave you, one of you, $1,000 and, hey, could you invest that money for me? And a couple weeks later, you come back and say, I got $13 and change left. I'm like, great, let's make millions. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense in that moment. And yet, that's what God is saying. You seem like you've labored in vain, and I am going to send you to the world and rescue the entire world through you. And, and isn't this exactly what takes place at the cross? Satan believed he had won with the death of Jesus. But it's like in that very moment, God pulls out the sword. He, he draws this polished arrow. And in that very moment of death, he conquers death. He conquers Satan. He conquers sin. And the risen Jesus comes and says after it seems like he had failed, but he had actually succeeded, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make, make disciples of all nations. Now, my point is this. We like Christ, our God's servant. And we should therefore understand that God's vision for us is so much bigger than ours is for ourselves. We feel our inadequacy, we feel our weakness, and so we think small. For us, if we can just be a nice church on the corner of, of walnut and oak, that's great. But, but God's vision for you and for me, for this church, is bigger than that. God's vision for you is bigger than just making it through the school year and maybe getting into college or, or meeting your quarterly goals or doing an okay job on the house renovation project. Those are all important things. Those all matter to God. But God's vision for you and for me and for the church throughout the world is to change the world and to rescue it. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we should all go out and immediately try to figure out some big, flashy, evangelistic event and try to build a megachurch. Rarely does God actually work in that way. What I'm more saying is that if we can be faithful in those small, seemingly innocuous, seemingly weak things time after time, we can look and see God doing much more than we could possibly imagine. 
Look, when you and I are praying, we're doing more than just wishing for good things. When, When you sponsor a missionary, you're doing more than just doing this guy a favor. When each of us participate in serving the church, we're doing more than just kind of carrying our our weight. When you are at work seeking to live in a way that is filled with integrity and Christ-like, you're being more than just a nice guy. When we are facing suffering and are seeking to be faithful, we're, we're doing more than just making it. Listen, in all of those things... We are engaging in battle. We are participants in God's warfare. We are on enemy grounds, and we have been given the sword, the arrow that is Christ Jesus, and by Him, by the power of His Spirit, God is actually at work. He is releasing prisoners from their prisons that are in their souls. He is bringing light and darkness through us. We are, we are fighting for justice, bringing hope to the world. There are enormous things that God is doing through our small and adequate efforts. And you know, what I love about the servant's response is that after God tells him, this is my plan for you, he's like, okay, I believe you. You ask me, why, why do I say that? Because, you know, where is that in the text? Well, do you notice how, how this passage begins? Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Who are the coastlands and who are the peoples from afar? That's us. Think about this. You have here Jesus speaking to you in this passage, hundreds of years before he even came. He's basically saying, hey, this, he's telling you this story to say, this is what happened. It looks like I failed, but now God is telling me that I'm, I'm supposed to now bring life to the nations. So guess what? I am coming for you. And he did. And now he invites you, like him, to receive what God's vision is that seems so impossible and to say your will be done no matter how big or impossible it might seem. God has a purpose for you that existed long before you were born. It's a purpose that will probably involve failure and so he calls you to trust in the midst of an experience of failure. But his purpose is bigger for you than you possibly can imagine. And so he invites you and me in the midst of this to say to him, your will be done. 